So maybe that's what they mean when they say prompting is going away. That it's going to be more conversational and not like um like like a script like a scripting technique, which is pretty no, much I, what it is now. I think it's way wilder than that. <laughs> hey, welcome to AI Expressed. This is a podcast kind of style discussion. Um, I'm Ed. This is Alex, and we're just gonna like take some time to kind of expand on topics. Um, that we run into on a daily basis where, you know, the pace of AI is so fast, we don't really get time to dive deep into these different topics. Um, so it's just kind of an open discussion about general AI themes. Each, each podcast will have a, a specific theme. Yes, exactly. It's basically just um, an excuse for me and add to chat about AI, which we always want to do, but we never find the uh, a legitimate time to do it so yeah we're gonna like really dive into different things so it'll be like talking about the latest news ai technology trends we'll discuss kind of ethical considerations with ai how this is impacting our culture our society we'll dive into like philosophical questions where ai is going what does the technology look like five ten hundred years from now we'll just nerd out we're both like really huge AI enthusiasts. It dominates our life right now. So we have a lot of interesting thoughts about it. Um, yeah, just, and we will so, not abstain yeah. from uncomfortable topics, you know, <laughs> the very more con more controversial ethical questions. Definitely. Uh, and we both have very different opinions. So it's, uh, it's usually an interesting discussion. Um, just sort of some background. Uh, I work for Run Diffusion, which is a service that provides a creative suite of AI apps. So we work very heavily with the open source community. Um, we have a lot of different apps right now. I think we have 10 more on the way. They're mostly centered around image and text generation. Um, so I'm relatively new to AI. You know, I started in this uh, last year, um, but I've definitely been following it. And my background is a uh, video artist as well as musical producer. Um, so I've kind of had that creative sort of edge to uh, what I do with AI. Alex? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I come from a video editing, uh, video production world as well. And I shifted into AI pretty heavily recently too. And myself, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades when it comes to AI. I do AI education, I do podcasting, a, a bit of journalism online and also a lot of researching, uh, not only for myself, but freelancing for some, for, for some startups uh, where I help them to understand uh, how to overcome some challenges when it comes to AI. Yeah, you've got a very varied skill set. I mean, you've, you've done model trainings, you've yes. done uh, Discord bots and language model work. Exactly, so both Stable Diffusion and LLM. So we've got very different ways of prompting. Uh, we'll go into it uh, and uh, let's get let's kick things off. Um, you know, I think prompting really started in the language model space, uh, particularly I think in 2015, like one of the most revolutionary pieces was this paper came out, Attention is All You Need, which sort of kick-started this prompting revolution. Um, and of course, uh, the introduction of stable diffusion you know, really helped define that for the uh, image space as well as other other um, other things like uh, Dali and so forth. Um, you know, I think that uh, prompting is sort of in a funny place right now in our development as a society using AI. You know, we've got all kinds of tools, all kinds of models. They all use prompts in a slightly different way, and so it can be really tricky to you know know what prompt works where what's the best way to use things um, we'll talk a little bit about uh, using prompting for language models but we you know our experience is, is really in stable diffusion and image generation so we've got a lot of opinions there <laughs> um, let's just start things off with with talking about prompting um, Alex you know would you say prompting at the moment is something that is undervalued or or not you know, um, used properly by the majority of people out there doing, you know, image generation, let's say. I guess when it comes to the conversation, the conversation in the stable diffusion world is very much focused on interfaces, plugins, advancements uh, in the technology. 
but not in the very fundamentals of um, the tool itself, which is which is prompting because you basically cannot do anything without prompting in stable diffusion. Uh, there are now some exceptions, but in general, prompting is always needed to, to get you started with stable diffusion. It's, it's, and it's the first thing you learn when you approach stable diffusion. You learn that when you prompt something, you're gonna get you know a specific kind of image. And by refining your skills in prompting, you also refine your skills in stable diffusion over time because you understand how your prompting interacts with every other aspect of automatic or Confi UI or any other interface you are, um, you're using. And as you said, uh, each tool have, has a different approach to prompting. Uh, like when you use a, a prompt and you might use it in another GUI or another like cloud tool, it might not yield the same results it does in, a, in another tool. And also there's just like tools that maybe have like a basic prompting, but also have automated AI tools to improve on your own prompting. So the uh, there's like a lot of implications and like branches of prompting, you know, like it can be, I guess, I guess the the one that everyone knows and everyone is used to is the one in, in Automatic 11.11, which is mm -hmm. pretty much where everyone uh, started, at least in, in the stable diffusion realm. And mm -hmm. then you can go from there to the one, for example. Mid-Journey. Mid, I mean, Mid-Journey has a very different prompting style, right? It's like, it's, it is really different per platform and then also per model. Yeah, it's funny uh, looking back at like where we came from to where we're going you know, I think that there's sort of a sort of community intelligence that happens where people who are sharing their prompts with one another um, are learning new tricks, learning new, new prompts um, and words to use in their prompts. And so uh, just like the AI is advancing, you know, our humanity is advancing in our learning of how to use AI in, in sort of the same way, using this sort of uh, collective intelligence to kind of unlock these these secrets in these models. Now that I think about it, there's a bit of a gray area when you when you say prompting, because some people consider prompting the whole workflow, you know? But some other think the prompting is just like the way you describe the subject of your of your like your positive and negative. But all of these interfaces, what they do is just like they're like a Python uh, UI. And so the product of whatever you do in this interface is always a textual prompt. Uh, it's never, it's not that you click a button and something weird happens. It's just all text, you know, all the inputs, even if there are buttons in the UI, they're just uh, text inputs that go to like the, the Python um, interpreter and they're interpreted. And, and a lot of these modern GUIs for stable diffusion, they're capable of like returning the prompt as a whole, which means like including all the settings and all the sliders in textual form. So what do you think, like, is it, what, what's the right way to talk about prompting, like as the entire workflow or just the, uh, the subject description? <laughs> yeah, I think that there's a lot of different ways to, to talk about it. It's, it's, um, it, it's, it's a very, very like wild and wonderful thing. Um, and of course, you know, once you get into the Python interpreter, like you're talking about, what happens then? It all turns into math, anyways, right? Yeah. So it's all it's all numbers and math. <laughs> I, I can't help but think of this like this really funny uh, parable, um, or not a parable, but just like a story of it's. A, I think it's like Chinese or Indian uh, old story of these uh, these wise men. So this is, this really relates to prompting to me, where there's these uh, these these blind men, and they're all brought by the king in front of an elephant. And they're told to describe what it is. And so the blind men go and they, they feel this elephant. And, you know, one is standing by the leg and he feels the, the leg and goes like, oh, this is a tree. This is clearly a tree. It's a strong trunk, uh, you know, of a tree. And it uh, is very tall and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and strong and, and stable tree. And then the other one's, you know, by, the, uh, by the, the trunk of the elephant. And he's like, it's like whirling around and stuff. He's like, oh, this is a snake. Like, this is scary. Like, I uh, wasn't, <laughs> wasn't prepared for a snake. Uh, hopefully it's not uh, harmless, uh, harmful. And, you know, they don't have the full picture of, of the elephant. And when you're prompting, a lot of the times that's what's going on. We, we don't know the math. We don't know, you know, there's, the there's, there's the math. Yeah. 
the weights. There's also like how it's interpreted and um, what kind of tricks go on behind the magic curtain in the application itself to your prompt. Yeah, and each model has a different uh, response to your prompt, you know? Yeah. You might be using yeah. the same interface, but with different models. I mean, we can we can always rely on the fact that most models we use are use stable diffusion, you know, vanilla stable diffusion as base. So mm -hmm. even when we use a more, uh, you know, refined and custom model, we can hope that like what we learn when it comes to the base model applies to the different iterations of the model. Yeah. So that's, that yeah. can be a constant, I guess. Yeah. You know, I think by piecing it together, all these different like collective intelligence discussions, people sharing that openness that I've seen in the AI space does help because the blind men talk together, then they figure out that it's an elephant, right? Yeah. Uh, but if we're all looking at it in silos, it's really hard to figure out. Um, with the base model and just looking at that, like I remember um, I found a creator like a while ago. It was Emperor of Antarctica, something like this. And it was, he was like incredible artist. Like he was getting the most wild results with like just uh, incredible results at Stable Diffusion. I messaged him and I was like, how, how did you do this? Like, what are, you, what are you using? What's your technology? What's your, you know? And he was just like, oh, it's just, just the base model. And th there's so much in it. Like you can just, you could endlessly traverse the base model and find incredible things. Exactly. When, when someone sees like a nice image, they think, oh my God, this must be like some new model that I haven't used. But actually, like if you just, be, I, I say it for experience because I sat down with some models and I, I did like spend a lot of time to understand how they reacted with the prompt uh, and how they were like reading the prompt and you know, understanding it, and that yielded some results that people who were using the same model could just not believe. You know, they were like, "What? This is not the same model, right? Like, you're using something else." But actually, it was just the same model with um, just a bit more patience with, with with prompting itself. And that's why I think prompting is undervalued because a lot of people are chasing this uh, perfect model, being blind to actually what they can do by themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the trained model sort of like surfaces and makes things easier to grasp. Like it makes it easier to get that trained model result. Mm -hmm. Because when you're training a model, right, you're like you're stuffing it with the tokens that you want or you're replacing tokens that are in there. So then it becomes easier to access those tokens in the diffusion model that you want to get the result you need. So that's that's the advantage of of training. But um, in the language model space, you know, there's this, this discussion that goes on all the time, which is like, why would I train something? If you think about it in the language model space, like it, it's so much harder to train a full model than yeah. it is in the stable diffusion space where you just fine tune something and it, you know, takes a few hours and you get a cool result and you're away you go. You got a good data set. But in the language model space, like the data set has to be so much more precise. You need so much more processing power. It takes so much longer. So... For them, it's like a much higher cost to train something. And so the, the way that the language models use prompts is much different, right? There's like instructions, which you can use. You can, you can um, really put in a lot more information. You get better context because it's not looking at this image. With images, you can be kind of fuzzy. Like the image itself is like artistic so there's lots of room for error but when you're looking at words like it has to be spelled correctly it yeah. has to have grammar it has to have you know correct formatting and data so um in the language model space they really really try to reduce the amount of times that they're training things because they're focused on okay can i just get access to what i want with the prompt if no can i have the language model do um what is it called uh rag retrieval Augmented guidance, I think. I think that's what it's called. Uh, better double check that one. Retrieval, augmented generation. So um, that is where there's a database and the language model is grabbing from the database and retrieving that information. Because if you can do that, you may not need to fine tune a model if it can just access a database that has the current information it needs. And we don't have that in, in stable diffusion, right? So it's, it's, and it's so much easier to train. So that's why you get all these people who are just leaning on trained images to, or trained models to get the results they want. Do you think that the difference in complexity in training a model is because most 
models in stable diffusion are der derivative models of a base model that is very well trained. We'll, whilst in LLM space, when you train a model, you do it from scratch, from a new uh, data set. And, and like the merging and mixing or, or LoRa space is not yet developed as it is for stable diffusion. I think it's, it's primarily the, the difficulty with the language model stuff is that it's an order of magnitude more complicated in just number of parameters. Um, so if you look at like the number of parameters in a stable diffusion model versus a, you know, 7 billion, 13 billion, um, it's quite a bit higher. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not able to recall from memory what 1.5 is. Maybe we can put it on the bottom of the screen there, uh, number of parameters, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, that is primarily where the difficulty is. I feel like complexity is definitely a part of it, but also I think we were discussing about this in private that the, the tooling to, to do some of the things that you can do in civil diffusion easily is still just not there yet. Like merging models or easily creating LoRa's based on a fine tune on a, on a fine tuning data sets are tools that are like they exist, but they're still pretty much like only, only Python coding uh, tools uh, or libraries. Whilst in stable diffusion, all of this merging and LoRa creation and fine tuning uh, uh, creation tools are GUIs that are pretty accessible to to a wider yeah. public. I mean, yeah, I'm not it, saying that it's yeah. only, the only reason, but I think it's a big part. Well, yeah, that's that. I feel like that's a different area of discussion. Is like the overlaps in technology between stable diffusion and language models because there is a lot. Uh, like the LoRa technology, for example, which started in language models and then was adapted for stable diffusion. I think there is a lot of synergy there. Um, I just I just looked it up and it's uh, one billion parameters in stable diffusion. Um, when you're looking at, you know, for example, seven billion for a small model, and Stability just released a three billion model uh, for language models that can operate on a mobile phone. Oh yeah, but the the difference is crazy because I'm just reading now that speculation is that ChatGPT is like GPT-4 is 1.2 trillion parameters. So the size, if the yeah. numbers are correct, is like staggeringly different. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, even so like, and even if you if you listen to the speculation that says that GPT-4 is just split into eight uh, smaller models, each one of these smaller models by itself is speculated to be 220 billion parameters. So it's still like mm -hmm. 200 times more than stable diffusion. Yeah, so this is it, the 1 billion number that I pulled out of uh, there. It, it is for 1.5 mm -hmm. and it's 860 million parameters of UNET and 123 million in the text encoder. Why? Like, like you would think intuitively that image making is more complex, right, than text. But it, it doesn't have to be as accurate. It, yeah. it, can, it can be much more oh, vague. Oh, that's true, right? And, yeah, that's true. And the other thing is, because it's so small, it really was adapted uh, quite quickly by consumer GPUs. And we saw, you know, really transformative kind of technology come out like Xformers, which made it much more accessible to lower VRAM cards so that it was able to kind of spread like wildfire. That's, the, I think, the struggle with the... Um, language model side right now is, you know, they, they, it's really hard to fit it onto like consumer cards, like really effective models. If you want to use like a 30 billion parameter, it's kind of out of reach of most consumer cards. So, um, so yeah, the, the interesting thing to me is um, looking at these models is, you know, you've got this like text encoder, right? So in the stable diffusion, you've got a text encoder that's responsible for interpreting that prompt, turning it into math, which is then accessed by these uh, tokens in the unit, which gives you the image. And the prompting kind of sits in that, in that area of working with the text encoder. So with stability, um, it's been really interesting seeing how, since they've been launching these different models, how they've adapted to kind of the community and how the community is prompting. Um, so to start off with, in 1.5, Runway released uh, 1.5, with this, um, you know, uh, uh, a clip uh, text encoder, um, VITL14, if you want to get specific. And uh, it was quite, um, quite accessible, quite usable. Um, and that's what made, you know, stable diffusion take off. 
in 2.1, stability released uh, um, more parameters, you'd think better, but they switched the text encoder. And All right. when the text encoder changed, it uh, was a different clip model. Uh, I think it moved to like open clip or something like that. Um, and that caused prompting to totally change. And this is where negative uh, prompting started to come in and um, people started using it a lot more heavily. And the prompting was just much different from 1.5. A great example of this that I can think of is like, um, you know, everything when you write it in gets split into little tokens that turns into the math that is used by the text encoder. And and it's this uh, this text encoder change uh, happened again with Excel, or it was yes. just like a one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that, so it happened. It happened again, but it's it's kind of funny what happened there. Um, so one funny thing in stable diffusion, I don't know if you've seen this, is verbs. Like if you use a verb, it is very interesting what comes out the other side. So like let's say we, for example, we have mechanic holding a wrench. In 1.5, you'd kind of get a guy holding a wrench or a mechanic holding a wrench. In 2.1, you might get a mechanic and a wrench, but you ne wouldn't necessarily get the verb in the in the thing. It was too strict. Yeah. Even still in Excel, uh, what matters the most is always descriptive word, like, and not actions or or states of minds or feelings, you know, they, they can do something, but they don't have the same effect as like just describing something like a blue sky or, uh, you know, a red apple, like something that is very descriptive, descriptive always have a, a much bigger effect on the end result than saying something like a sad person. Yeah. Th those modifiers are definitely stronger. So with, with SDXL, um, you know, the community had kind of rebelled <clears throat> against 2.1. One, because it was uh, censored, they took the Lion data set and just took everything that was new, not safe for work, got rid of it. Um, and uh, with 1.5, but you also lost the text encoder of 1.5. Mm -hmm. So they basically said, all right, we're not going to make it nude. That's like stability draws a line. So like you guys train what you want in here. But what we're going to do is we'll put in both text encoders. So they have both models of text encoder in there, which means that, that like it's it's completely wild. It's like now you've got two. And I, I kind of feel like it's not better than either of them. Like it's like it kind of takes some of each, but it also takes some of the downsides of each. And so um, SDXL brought in a lot of complexity um, well, trying to simplify prompting. So what's interesting about SDXL, you can do very simple prompts, you can get great results. Um, and a lot of the stuff that worked in 1.5 where you get great results now doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. Like overly complicated prompting doesn't work as well. Um, and have then- they, Have they yeah. merged the encoders or you can still, like for example, in ConfiUI, you would be able to choose which one you want to use? Well, it's funny because when Stability released this, they didn't provide much guidance. Like they were, they were working on it and there was like people in the community um, trying to figure it out, but they sort of didn't know what was going on. So they were like, I don't know, like let's, let's figure this out together, which was a sort of a weird thing. Um, but I saw like, for example, I was in, um, you know, watching this development happen live uh, with uh, SD Next with comfy UI, um, people making their own workflows. You kind of seen it in the development of uh, Automatic 11.11. Um, you know, everyone struggled to implement this right away just because there wasn't much guidance on how it works with, to be fair, with all these like open source tech that stability didn't, you know, manage or use necessarily. So they, there was just like an interesting period of a few months where it was like a sprint to like publicly put it together and get it working. And um, the... Comfy piece was definitely ahead of ahead of everyone. So Comfy was like in the front of the pack because of their node-based architecture. They basically split out their workflow and the community was able to like create their own nodes and really quickly map things. And then they had the two text encoders separated so that you could you could prompt them. And people were like theorizing, like, oh, use one for style, use one for subject, or you know, try to try to use them in different ways. But it's still not clear what the best 
practices necessarily yeah. um, for using those two um, different text headquarters. boxes. Yeah, which are called like vit T or vit L or something like that. Um, you know, the the uh, automatic eleven eleven and SD next sort of like merged them into uh, a single. Uh, prompt input yeah like it's something you cannot to, you but... cannot customize on on automatic it's just uh baked in. i think there's a setting uh i'd have to double check that though um but uh yeah I, I, it's 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 strange uh it was a strange rollout but it's it's been cool to see people figure stuff out with this um but i think that um with the text encoder piece it's like you definitely are like, ah, there, there's got to be a better way to do this. And we have seen it with, with Dolly 3. Yeah. We've seen, we've seen the advancement there. Yeah. And in, in my prompting with, with Excel, I have to say that I've been satisfied with how it works. I didn't, I mostly use 1.5 and I didn't even touch 2.1 much because I did, just didn't like the models that were floating around. Um, and jumping from 1.5 to Excel prompting, I didn't feel like a massive, um, you know, uh, difference. If anything, yes, as you said, prompting is simpler and you can get to a better result with less words. Kind of like, kind of like how, how it works in Midjourney, right? Like in Midjourney, you, the simpler you, you stay with your prompting, uh, the, the more you can kind of expect a decent result. And the more you bloat your prompt, um, especially of unrelated stuff, the last the image is like satisfactory. So in my experience, at least I didn't I didn't notice anything negative in in new prompting in Excel. If anything, I liked it. Maybe if I tried two point one, I would have a different opinion. Did you ever like two point one for prompting? Um, I did use two point one a bit because it was uh, much better at like photographic styles um, than one point five, um, but it just suffered because. Um, you know, the flexibility in the text encoder wasn't there. So it was able to like produce photographic styles quite well. Um, my issue with SDXL is yes, you can get great stuff out of it. Um, but the model itself is, uh, really over and under trained in certain areas. And, um, the, the way I've kind of described this is, um, if you think of this, this trained, information that there's a text encoder there's the unit information like the image math basically um, and in that image math there's sort of if you've got an xyz grid imagine in your mind with all these different points on it of these different like tokens these different words that are describing things um, there's sort of like territories there's like three-dimensional blobs on this graph colored differently and a good example of this is the illustration token you look at the illustration token um, in SDXL, there's this very prominent illustrator style. I don't know what it is. Um, it was in the um, stability discord when they were doing the discord generation bot. I saw mm -hmm. it a lot. And it's kind of like an orangey line art, digital art kind of style. Um, and it it's just really overtrained. So like if you try to... Um, bring in like fine tune the little elements of of your prompt um, to bring in like different illustrative styles this area is so overtrained that if you just have illustration in there it will just dominate everything that comes out of it so i i really like to use those styles yeah so we're talking about is a, is a visualization of the of the weights that they published yeah I've never seen that. That's oh no, it's just published up here. Oh, okay, <laughs> I just like to see it this way because I think of it. I think of that space as like a no, world, absolutely, right? yeah. I think it. So, I think it pretty uh, much a good way to visualize it is like. Have you ever seen one of those like time space graphs with like yeah, uh, like when you illustrate gravity, I guess you know you see like this kind mm -hmm. of net and then you see something like pulling the net more down than another planet. Yeah, yep. you know hills and valleys and yeah. yeah. I, I like to think of it as an actual like world that I'm exploring. So when I'm looking at a new model, um, I'm like kind of exploring this new world and finding these territories and mapping them out. So like, for example, the illustration style, it's to me, it's like kind of like a desert, like there's just, or maybe a mountain. It's just like, it's barren. There's like 
because it's not very flexible to me, like flexibility is life, is growth, is like, those are like fertile areas where it's this barren areas are not very fertile because the illustration token just dominates that area so heavily that it's really hard to get your prompt to flourish in that environment. Um, the opposite of that is undertrained areas. So um, there's a lot of, for example, um, I think this was maybe deliberate, SDXL, there's a group called Parrot Zone, and they went with SDXL, and they did this for 1.5 as well. They went and mapped all the artist styles that have an impact on the prompt. Um, so they did every single artist that they could you know, test in SDXL to get a response from. I've seen, this and on, what they I've found, seen that on GitHub. Yeah, yeah. They, they found that um, there's all these artists that are out, trained in there, but when you prompt them and you see the examples the backgrounds are all very undertrained. There's just like lots of, of, uh, of glitches, deformed stuff and like unclear, unspecific, which is all to me, like, I've, you know, training dream boost styles, you kind of see this sort of like mess that happens um, in a stable diffusion model at, before it understands what a concept is. It's like, it's very like uh, unclear mix mash of amalgam of all this like weird crud. And that's what you kind of see in these areas is it's like very undertrained. So if you bring those tokens in, you start to get that crud in your in your image, um, which I think was a deliberate decision on their part, maybe because they didn't want to train in all these artist names, for example. Yeah, it's fascinating how like both, as you say, both overtraining and undertraining can affect the end product because overtraining can steer the end image too far away from what you wanted because the model is biased, right? Mm -hmm. But also under training can steer the image away from what you want because the model doesn't have any idea of what you want to 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 produce, right? And it's something yeah. I never I never thought about before that both like overtraining and undertraining can have negative effects on, mm -hmm. on the image. But that's I guess why then you want to step into training your own stuff. Cause then you can we, Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's I think that's what stability wanted is they kind of said like hey you know we want to work with businesses and lots of artists are upset that their work is being stolen we don't want to touch that like if you want to bring an artist in you have to train it um but we'll get the like the broader picture of just artists in general mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of what happened is they sort of like they had a bunch of images that were probably captioned as artists, but it didn't, they didn't want to like really say like, we're going to capture this specifics person. They're just like, we're just going to capture the work of all these different artists, which is, which is totally fair. I think with SDXL as well, they, they had like an opt out list too, right? So you could, if you were an artist, you could be like, I don't want my art in the model. And they'd say, great, you're off the list. Or if you wanted to have your art in there, you could say opt in. Yes, please train on my illustration style. Have you ever seen that, like, on you know, a lot of um, art hosting websites like ArtStation or DeviantArt, now you have an option to say, I don't want my art to be used in the training of an AI model. Do mm -hmm. you think that actually works? It's actually something that is respected or applied, or it's just like... Uh, it may be... I think like individual companies are having to say whether or not they're using information to be trained, which is good. Um, However, you know, the tool set and dank persistence of people who are making this thing, so like they will rip anything that's visible off. I mean, it's just, it's just sort of the nature of it is they will take what is they can see, what is public information, and then use it to train models with. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess yeah. it's more for internal purposes because a lot of these companies eventually they will want to monetize their own data. And they just do it to know if like their users are okay or not. Um, but it doesn't have real implications on how external, you know, parties can just come to the website, scrape it and use it in, in their model. Um, yeah, I think I think a really like kind of negative example of this is Firefly, where they uh, changed their terms of service. So they took their stock stuff and said, Oh, by the way, now you're, now you're allowed to, uh, to train a model or we're allowed to train a model on your, on your art that you've put into this stock website, which is, you know, it's their library, I guess, huh. but, and they're paying the users for it, but it was kind of like that, uh, uh unexpected change. 
Um, but the more that they allowed the training all of a sudden. The more crazy example, I guess, is Copilot, because Copilot is just trained mm -hmm. on the entirety of GitHub. And yeah. any snippet of code you post on GitHub, it will be used in, in the training of Copilot. <laughs> yeah, I saw some crazy stuff where people were like, uh, personal information is getting put out in prompts. I'm like, whoa, you know. Um, so so let's let's uh, just talk like briefly about uh, using that information. You know, I think that there's uh, some laws in Europe that basically say, and I, I think Germany's leading on this one, um, but they basically say, you know, whatever is public can be used for training. Sort of the same way like an artist uh, who is inspired by like, let's say a certain anime artist or whatever will draw in that style and eventually incorporate it. And then later on, you know, they'll get enough uh, creativity and artistic experience to like develop their own style, but it still might have that little influence of that, like first few artists that they really loved and adored and copied. Yeah. Um, so they say, you know, AI can just kind of learn all that stuff. Um, that's the law in, in these countries, which, you know, I think that, uh, if we're stewards of this AI, um, and we want it to learn who we are and what we're doing, like, yes, that makes sense. But <laughs> uh, there is, of course, people whose livelihood is on it. And that's when it gets a little difficult um, knowing that, you know, people who have invested their whole lives in learning an art now are threatened by the ability for someone to go on to, let's say, Dolly 3, for example, yeah. and just get something in that style instantly. Well, I think the, the legal landscape is ever evolving and... At some point, there might be very restrictive uh, laws about this, but I think it won't make a difference because at that point, just like training the artist you want to use will be so easy that whatever guardrail is there to, to, to stop you in doing that will be so trivial mm -hmm. that, you know, this like... Like let's say let's say okay let's say uh, stable diffusion puts massive guardrails in the use of artists that have their work like protected or copyrighted. Uh, at that point, you can just like there would be tools online to just download libraries of images to quickly train on, on by yourself the model or the LoRa you need to achieve that style and quickly reproduce it you know maybe maybe there will not there will not be websites on the on the on the clear net maybe it will be torrents you will find torrents with like a massive data set to use ready to use and just like in in a few minutes train it on your on your on your computer and have dali um you know dali style painting uh, done perfectly so i yeah. think it's fair and, and ethically it's 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 what it should be that um artists should be protected but you know it's like it's like trying to stop piracy right a, a little bit I, I think there's a lot of interesting parallels through history that we've had um you know i think of like hip-hop sampling right where it's like you know with hip-hop um they would take these old funk records, these old soul records, and then they'd, you know, sample a few seconds of it, turn it into a beat, remix it, flip it. Um, so on the one hand, as a musician, I, I can identify with that. I'm like, yeah, I want to, I want to scour the archives of the libraries and the, the thrift stores and get all this like crazy stuff and incorporate it into my art. Um, but on the other hand, it is definitely impacting people's lives and that has to be considered um, you know, an example of this was I was having a discussion with a, uh, university professor and, uh, you know, they were quite upset about AI because, um, not only are there hallucinations, right. Uh, that are, you know, misinterpreting information and putting in fake information out there about people. But, um, in Canada, um, royalties for, um, academic papers have been under attack. So, uh, previous uh, government um, rolled back and um, a lot of the um, lucrative royalties that were there for, you know, academic thinkers. And so now they're seeing this as just another attack on on royalties and like, you know, these AI models aren't paying royalties. So that is that is something where it's like, okay, um, 
you know, there's a, there's a, a clash of culture here of like the way we've been doing things as a society, the way we want to do things now with AI and we want to give access to, you know, all these people, um, freedom of information, you know, there's this new movement in the younger generation of like access and information and transparency, but it's clashing with this like sort of older way of doing things. Um, you know, and this is something where like the forces of capitalism and bureaucracy are working against those people that, you know, otherwise would be protected, um, like artists, like creatives, like writers, you know, and these are all the things that make us human. Uh, these, these artists and creators are, are what we value, maybe not as much as we should, you know, I think that there's a lot of value placed on like business achievement, success, money that the, the literature, the arts, you know, gets, gets put to the side already. And now we got AI doing it. And it's just like, that is, you know, is this the nail in the coffin or as a society, are we going to like kind of wake up and say like, Hey, we need to encourage this or we need to like help these people. That's, you know, that seems to be the, the question for our, our governments. Yeah. I might've sounded apocalyptic before when I, when I talked about the, the, the low landscape and how people can pirate, can, can we we'll be easily able to pirate, uh, you know, and, and make new models on their own. But what I, what I see in the, um, in the startup world, uh, I can, I see the startups I collaborate with when they go and create a new model, they're very conscious and very fair with, uh, the rights of the, of the content they want to use to train models. And so that makes me in turn optimistic about how the the landscape when it comes to protecting artist rights will evolve because at the end of the day yeah there can be you know pirates who quickly make their own models but they will not be able still to use it for commercial purposes because they will be found out you know you cannot publish an ai generated image image pretending to be andy warhol is a great example because he recently was in court uh for his um uh, work which was determined to not be transformative. So that's one of the, the most interesting court cases right now for AI art. What I was uh, saying that is that you, 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 as a commercial entity, you cannot get away with this kind of stuff. And so even, and that's the most important thing, right? That if companies and small businesses, businesses are, they respect this. And I can see that they have like a self, uh, like a self embedded respect. They, they, they don't take it for granted. They want to do the right thing. At least the, the people I've collaborated with so far, I think it reflects where this is going to go, which is like for commercial applications, they will not, there will not be stealing, you know, it would be very hard to see this kind of stuff because this company, rather than taking the risk of stealing, they'd rather like train something of their own based on like mm-hmm. a small a small um data set right they could just pay an artist to create a style for them and then train a model on that style to be able to quickly reproduce it and be more fre- flexible and produce more content and that would cost them less and it would bring less risk than just like stealing from from somewhere else right because that way if someone comes to them and say look you've been stealing from me they would have proof that they've been doing you know this work and you know they've been training their own stuff their own data set uh, and so they would have an they would have an, an incentive in being transparent and um and open when it comes to training and data sets I, I do want to touch on something you mentioned earlier which is like you were talking about how it's going to be so easy to train. And it's, it's kind of funny because just recently, I don't know if you saw the, uh, the new IP adapter workflow where it's like, uh, it's called like train without a Laura or Laura without training is I think what it's called. Is and it they style, style, style transfer? It's a, it's a comfy UI thing. Yep. Using the IP adapter control net model. So it, it does the style transfer. You put in six images and then a prompt, and then it gets you those six images style with your prompt. And we're going to see a lot more of that, right? That like sort of like one shot style transfer sort of thing. I think like um, uh, Google even had it and they sort of like stepped back. They're like, oh, I don't know if we want to release this, right? Because it is controversial. It is going to cause people to be upset. But that is where we are going is eventually the technology will be there that you will be able to do this. And this is where the technology is going to a really interesting new place because I've heard these people say like prompting is going to disappear completely. 
right? It's like, we don't know what that future looks like necessarily from where we're standing today. I mean, but the question um, is, how do you steer the AI in a specific direction without prompting? Right. If and you, so, if you, I yeah. think if you, if you remove prompting, what it uh -huh. means is that you are just, just giving it references like visual references instead of well, giving it textual references. Well, uh, Maybe. I, I think this is where the multimodal stuff takes over. Multimodal mm. meaning, you know, um, an AI model that can do text, it can do video, it can do images, it can do all the things. And we're going to see these like mega multimodal AI or, models coming yeah. out. Or maybe, and I can show this, maybe it has something to do with the way I saw Dali reacting to prompts. Because Dali, basically, you give it a description and it's not even a prompt. It's just like you, you normally chat with ChatGPT. You say, I want, I would like to see an image of this. And you don't have to write it in prompt form. You don't have to put dashes, square brackets or anything. It's just like a simple conversational description of your image. Yeah. And then Dali itself take, takes it and transforms it into four variation of a prompt that it made up by itself depending on the context of the conversation. So maybe that's what they mean when they say prompting is going away, that it's gonna be more conversational and not like um, like like a script, like a scripting technique, which is pretty no, much I, what it is now. I think it's way wilder than yeah? that. I think I think what they're talking about, like <laughs> that is where it's going. You're right. Like Dolly three is incredible for its its text encoder is like yeah. like the best text encoder we've I can seen. Quickly, out there. I can quickly show it as you keep talking about Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so I think where it's going is there's a couple things that will be in play. I think what you're talking about is right. There's also the um, voice first kind of revolution that's uh, that will happen. Mm. You know, I think just recently they talked about having these like uh, little necklaces, kind of like in the Black Mirror episode where it records your whole life, right? So you're gonna have these like something that is with you, an AI yeah. companion that is with you and is like taking all of this that you have. Now, hopefully, it stays private and local or private that you control your data, right? So you see what it does. And basically you give it like, imagine an eight headed Hydra where each head is a chatbot. And as you mm -hmm. can see, it goes and makes four different prompts by itself. Mm. And, it, and it generates on, on these prompts. And just to go back to what you were saying about like something, a device that tracks your life all day right. long. I mean, all, all that all that data stacks at the end of the day, though, you know, so it's still but, prompting. But what the difference is, <laughs> is it's going to predict what you want a lot right. better. So right now, it like, you know, it's guessing based off of the information you've given it, which is, you know, these like 10 words or so. Um, but what it's missing is the context of who you are. Okay, and so you... you are in there then it'll it could just be like here's you know we could open it up and it would just be like here's a creative image that explains how dolly 3 works yeah. and you wouldn't have to prompt anything it would just predict and know what you need because with listening to us here talk right so and the, the that's context, the revolution so the context will not be anymore just like the conversation with ChatGPT, but it will be like your entire life will be context for the image generation Yes, but isn't, it but will isn't, know isn't when that, to jump in. You won't have to ask it. Like, isn't that a bit like customized advertising online? I mean, it sounds <laughs> like it sounds like something like we all want. You know, when when they pitch it to you, or you get like personalized uh, advertising which like fits your lifestyle. But and like it sounds right. amazing, but actually in practice, it's it's awful. It's the last thing you would want to be but targeted. What, what if you? controlled this AI and you got to determine how it worked. So everyone would have a customized AI to them. And so you'd be able to say, hey, look, I, I just want to ask you if I want an image. I don't want you to bust in and just give mm. me an image. You know, or, or you'd be like, look, you can give me an image, but I need you to like uh, request it beforehand. Uh, and then I can acknowledge yes or no. And, you know, like I think that there's going to be this level of customization that we've never seen before. Um, I mean, I get I get frustrated daily with UI. I'm sure you do, too. Right. Like the UI of all these applications we have, there's so many different UIs, there's so many different things. Yeah. Um, I talked about this recently and uh, on LinkedIn it's like, I think eventually AI will eat software 
they talked about before software is eating everything. That was a classic, um, uh, what was it, Mark Andreessen post or something like that. I think AI is going to eat everything next. And the, the, like all this stuff that we're used to, spreadsheets, our PowerPoints, it's all going to disappear. We won't mm. have to do that stuff because the AI will be able to do it for us. And if we need a UI, if we need a new app, we'll just prompt it. We'll just ask it. And so prompting will still exist in some form, but... So I, I don't mean to pry, but like how then would you work? Let's say you, you need to make it a, a, a database for work. You know, you need like an Excel spreadsheet, but you cannot do it on a GUI. How do you... <laughs> How do you go about that? Like, I mean, maybe, maybe I don't know because I cannot imagine like how advanced AI would be. I'm just trying to understand what's the step from, you know, Excel with AI to just like the GUI completely disappearing and just the AI remaining. Uh, yeah. In, well, in the it, it'll again use the prediction. Like right now we have it predicting tokens, right? Yeah. It's like uh, one way of, of seeing these language models. Then it's going to start predicting us and what we need um and that scares the jesus out of everyone okay. right so you will predict but the work you need to do and just do it in advance look we have clients we have sales we have accounting and it'd be like i'm a business software i'm a business artificial intelligence actually i run in and i say like okay you don't need any more software i'm just going to do everything and then when you say hey what are the q4 sales for north america it'll pull that information out and then if you want you can look and say like, hey, I want that in a spreadsheet, and it will do it, but mm. it knows it. It has all your data. It has everything in there already. Mm -hmm. And from a creative process, like using, we're already using AI to do the prompting for us. So for example, here, you know, you're using Dolly to generate the prompt yeah. because AI is better at prompting than we are. Now it's, it's uh, better at the specifics, not the ideas, right? Right now, humans, we dominate on ideas. We are really good at ideas. And yeah, AI it, is not good at ideas. It, right knows, now. it knows how the, the end model behaves. So it knows what words to use to trigger uh, a more yeah. a specific, not a specific, a specific result, but a more like tested and interesting result than yeah. you do. And, and we see this already happening with like... Um, there's uh, like an, a great example of uh, that one's that one's cute. <laughs> They're all waiting to talk. There's a great example of like uh, Uba Booga, which is a really funny language model. You know, there's um, an adapter for that, uh, an extension for automatic, which connects to Uba Booga, and then it will pull in a prompt. So you just write a general description of what you want, and then it like enhances, adds, modifies, and formats your prompt so that you get the best result out of the model hmm. and that kind of technology already shows us like the ai is better at using ai than we are so, so what is what is the technology or the tool that most that gets the closest to this vision you you just illustrated of like something like an ai predicting what you want and do it for you what's what bring like what's the tool that is the closest to this um to this idea uh, i think it's uh agents Oh, yeah, yeah. Agents, yeah. because agents are basically language models that have been given chain of thought, yeah. and then they manage multiple other AI to achieve an objective. Mm -hmm. They'll yeah, do the strategic yeah. planning. Yeah. And right now, agents are just limited because it's just hard to keep them on all the time. But if well, they think, could accumulate yeah. enough context, then they would be more effective. And that's that's the context window that people are running into. It's an issue where... They can only fit so much information in at a time. Part of it's related to just the AI model technology and where we're at. You know, in stable diffusion, we can only do so many tokens in our prompts, for example. Yeah. And in these language models, you can only fit so much information before it starts forgetting and just not remembering what it needs to do next. Yeah. I mean, I think humans have a context window too. I've, I've heard it called the human bandwidth limit, right? We can only have, have so much information before we start forgetting yeah. it. And so, and so and some what's going to happen is the AI have, is going to exceed that. Yeah, eventually. and some people have uh, bigger or, or smaller, you know, short-term memories, which affect the way they 
interact and, and perceive the world. But I have I have to say something about uh, prompt like automated prompting like this because maybe I'm biased because I come from like a long story of you know uh, prompting on simple diffusion and really appreciating the art of finding the right words in the right order, you know, and finding the, the tokens that click the right button in the model. But I personally don't like this style of prompting where you just like this, this Dali style where you just put a, a description and it's gonna do more work than you asked it to do for you. I feel like I'm losing too much control. And maybe this is like the artist perspective because I, I do consider myself in part an artist, I guess. Uh, when it comes to stable diffusion, like uh, as you do, I guess, and and that lack of control, you know, that the fact that the AI is, is deciding so much for me makes me feel less of an artist if I come and use Dali as opposed as you know, stable diffusion, because I'm losing so much control and I'm not sure, like, how much am I gaining in quality by by giving up that that control on on the on the AI. I think that what we as artists like is you know just the ability to um have that extra little bit of control there's a really interesting app for example called focus right now and it just provides like really great instant results um same with midjourney you know you use it you get really great instant results but um you know as an artist you're like yeah but i I don't want to see someone else's art. I want to see my art. And the only way we could do that is by having a human impact on the art that we're creating, where yeah. we're really defining the aesthetic as close to our vision as possible. So as these AI get better, yes, there is a risk that we'll just turn into like, you know, we'll start to consume our art rather than create it, right? Um, but uh, the more functionality we can bring to it, you know, this allows us to curate the experience of interacting with with things. So um, Fucus is is beautiful. You can go and try all these different styles and the technology is adapting. You can mix styles now. Um, and, you know, as they're like training wheels, you know, automatic 1111 has so much capability, but it's way more than the average person needs. You know, this is why Dolly 3 is great. Now the average person has some really yeah. wonderful technology. Um, but for those who want to do unique and wild things like for example the spiral trend right with the control net spirals you know i think that that is something where the artist will always be wanting further access to kind of the controls of things did um, you want so that to... won't go away people have fun with it you know <laughs> yeah did you want to show focus quickly because i've never seen it okay got it there mm -hmm. yeah so this is what's what's interesting is it just starts like this is um from run diffusion, you know, this stuff, but this is what you get. So this is the application itself. This is just the run diffusion iframe, but it's really just picture prompt, the simplest of interfaces. So, you know, if we put in beautiful landscape photograph of the Irish Hills, uh, what, what, what should we make specific about it with a, uh, eclipse? hit generate. And so there's really not much to this. It's just the image yeah. and the prompt. There's it's very, no sliders. Very yep. And you got, I actually like how the image comes Ooh. in. It's kind of like really, really crisp and interesting uh -huh. to see that diffusion process happen. Um, yeah. I think, I think sometimes being, being able to see a bit of the steps as it goes through them helps also to understand how to tweak your prompt. In prompting in stable diffusion, you can manipulate the steps. Like you can say, draw this only from step one. If you have, let's say, 30 steps, you can say, uh, draw this only from step one to 10, and then from step 10 to 20, draw something else. And you can use it to manipulate the end result. Uh, so being able to see the steps, like this could be useful actually in manipulating your prompt further and, and getting better yeah. results. Well, that that's beyond this though, right? This is super basic. So. Um, you know, that's an automatic thing. This just gets good results right away. Uh, you see, we got kind of funny, funny little Irish hills there. It thinks it's <laughs> something. Look at the watermark. Yeah. So, but if you want, you can go a little bit deeper. So you hit this advanced button and then you get, you know, speed and quality is really, really it. How many images you want negative prompt there. Um, but if you click the style tab, 
Uh-huh. So you'll see right now the default is slightly cinematic. And if you want, you can you can really use hundreds of styles. And what's interesting about these styles is they are essentially prompt additions, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to take what we have here and then add different modifiers to it. Yeah. So if we do abstract expressionism. There's a similar plugin from for automatic called styles. Yeah, it, it uses the styles, yeah. And uh, the creator of ControlNet made this application. So it's it's um, really uh, slick. There's a lot of interesting tricks under the hood, like with samplers and steps and all that stuff that they've added in to make this uh, produce great results. Yeah, I think um, this is this is definitely a step toward less prompting, you know, because I can see this evolving into you don't even have any more the text box and you just have like, you, you select... Uh, predefined stuff based on how the model was trained, maybe. But then you can like combine them, which is pretty funny. Like what happens if we add a disco uh, paper cut collage, you know? (laughs) We'll see what happens. Yeah, so I think like there is sort of something happening where there's a lot of like developer-focused people that are making these AI applications and um, they basically have a new sort of realm that they have to explore of like making these human artists a good interface. Um, and this is what the control net one, you know, aspires to do. I think w- when some people step into like automatic and stuff, they're overwhelmed by all the settings and like different sliders and things. And it, they can very easily get off track and get a gutter ball of a generation of just like a really bad generation and be like, oh, this sucks. But here, you know, this is easy. What do you think is the incentive for wanting less prompting? You know, like right now, is it the complexity of prompting or what's the what's the need? Like, you know, why are people so, you know, interested in, in removing prompting from, from the work from these kind of workflows? Well, I think the 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 interesting thing is kind of what we talked about at the start, where you've got these like blind men and the elephant, right? Is like we don't know the weights in the model. We don't know what it's been trained on for caption-wise unless we ourselves created it. We don't know these overtrained and undertrained areas except by bumping into them while we're prompting. Mm. And so it will remove a lot of this trial and error. Oh, that's um, true. Yeah. You, you see this a little bit happening with like mid-journey. Like there's some theories. Mid-journey is like chat GPT, right? Like we don't know what's going on under the hood necessarily. Yeah. But we can theorize and the you know the the discussion there is that there's a lot of like prompt engineering that happens after you put the prompt in to make yeah. the image in a certain yeah. way, right? I'm um, positive that that's the case. Like I'm sure that when you prompt something into Midjourney, Midjourney will take it and change your prompt according to how the model was trained, and it probably has like a bunch of different models under the hood that it selects according to your prompt you know like if you if it thinks that your prompt necessitates a specific style is going to pull up a, a model that has a specific style which is also what is apparently happen, happening with with ChatGPT. I, I wrote i wrote an article today about this topic that there's basically rumors um that ChatGPT is not one model but is uh, eight models that mm-hmm. then also are directed by 16 different inference models so, and yeah. each uh, every time you prompt something, basically ChatGPT selects a solution, so a model package that is the most uh, suitable, like suited for your prompt for your prompt, and gives you a result. So, for sure, Midjourney has something like that under the hood. You know, in regards to just like getting better at prompting, like um, it it is a, a method of mapping that space, and I think that that's something that. Um, you know that there's a there's a lot of work to be done in education in that space of teaching people how to prompt. Now you have people going out getting jobs as prompt engineers, right? Who are just figuring it out, and it's just trial and error. Um, so as we move into a, like a future space, uh, we will have AI that trains us how to use AI. We will have AI educators teaching us how to use AI because they're just better at it. Um, we still are better at ideas for now. 
And, uh, you know, maybe once that idea threshold is passed, that'll be the singularity. And all of a sudden, AI will start doing its own thing, right? But that, should for now, the, that should be the yeah. AGI, you know, when, you, when, when the AI starts having ideas of its own that are truly original, I guess that's probably the point where you have artificial general intelligence. Yeah, so we've had a really interesting uh, high-level discussion just about prompting. What is the future of prompting? Where is prompting going? Is prompting going to disappear? Uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully we left you with some, some real curiosity about where things are going, some interesting questions to pursue. Uh, you know, the industry is moving so fast that this future of promptlessness could be here faster than we even know. Um, and uh, but there is a very practical need for prompting today. Um, so in the next episode, we'll be going over um, you know the the high level con or the the actual practical applications of of prompting, uh, breaking down specific prompts, how they work, um, techniques for prompting for both stable diffusion and Chat GPT. Yeah, this was super interesting for me. You brought some topics that really opened my mind and like really food for thought on uh, the future of prompting. It was super interesting and I'm curious to see like how it's going to actually evolve. I'm sure like the end result is gonna be different from what we both expect. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was definitely food for thought and also food for thought on for practical applications, you know, in, uh, in software development and prompting in general. Thinking about the future of prompting definitely gives you tools to, to understand and appreciate more the practical prompting you do on a day-to-day -day, -day basis. So thank you very much, Ed. Oh, thank you, it was great. Uh, great discussion, lots of topics to uncover. I feel like we could go for in like another hour, uh, but we will do in the part two, we'll be talking about the elephant in the room. We'll, we'll go over prompting and discuss uh, the practicalities of it, what works, what doesn't. Um, and uh, yeah, so stay tuned. This is uh, AI Unplugged. I'm Ed. I'm Alex. Thank you very much for watching. Thanks very much for watching. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Bye.